The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. Scripture reading this morning, I'll be reading from John chapter 11, uh, verses 45 through 53. As I read this, let's remember, this is the very word of God. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the, uh, the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Have a seat. After singing that last song, I feel compelled to pray. Psalm 46 is a fantastic passage. That's a fantastic psalm, so let's pray. Lord, thank you that um, we here today can sit in the joy of that psalm, that where else could we go uh, to find power and joy and hope and peace except for your presence? Lord, I know it, 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 the lie that this world tells us is that in our shame and our weakness and our inabilities, we should run from you. That we should cover all of that with uh, man-made objects, with our own coverings, with the fig leaves of our lives. And yet, Lord, we know that the only thing that can cover that is you. And that when you see us and you meet us and you cover us, it is in our shame. You see us for exactly who we are. That it is pointless for us to try to cover that up because you see through all of it. And you see the needy sinners that we are. And yet instead of rejecting us and despising us and hating us, you loved us to send your son to come to this earth to do what we should do, what was required of us to do. And we can stand here today rejoicing in that hope. Lord, just be with us now as we get to look at your word, as we get to look at you walking this earth, seeing how you interacted with sinners, seeing the grace and the truth that you proclaim to us. Lord, just help us to rest in these truths today. And in your son's name, amen. Well, I've been waiting to say this. I would encourage you to turn to the book of John. We get to uh, return to the Gospel of John. It's been a while. It's been almost over two months now since we've been in the Gospel of John. I've enjoyed the series that we've had in the middle, and we've got some others uh, planned even for this year that we're going to break up the Gospel as we move through some more. But I have been uh, waiting to get back into the Gospel of John because something's happened. I realized in this break, 
You know when something that's like a, uh, a, a stew, it just kind of has to sit there and meld together? Well, in, in, in the melding of my own heart, I've realized, I've been realizing how much Jesus has impacted me and has affected me and affected me in my daily walk with God and with Christ. Um, this, this gospel has been uh, just uh, tearing my heart out in, in, in a good way, and it's, I'm excited for it. And so I'm excited to get back into this gospel and to look at how Jesus walked this earth and how he interacted with, with sinners. Grace and truth is how we started this book. That was the concept that John used in the prologue to describe Jesus, grace and truth. And as we start this new section today, or rather we're not starting a new section, but finishing up an old section, just about to launch into a new section, I realize that we need to keep in context all that we've seen thus far. I also understand that there's several new faces around the room. So when we started this book uh, a couple of years ago, not everyone was here. And so I thought just for a moment as we're getting our minds back into the Gospel of John this morning that a small recap would be um, uh, beneficial for us all, uh, again, just to remind us where we started. The Gospel of John can be described as a man writing to tell his readers about his amazing friend. I know that's a confusing sentence. Essentially, John had this friend. He had this friend in Jesus. Jesus saved his life, made him a disciple, called him out of his own personal darkness, and John got to walk with Jesus throughout his ministry here on earth and call him friend. But Jesus was such an amazing friend, was such a life-transforming friend, that after he died, John sits down to write this gospel, and it essentially, I need you to meet, to know about, my friend. You see, John knows firsthand the blessing that comes from meeting Jesus. Jesus offers us hope. Jesus is the answer that we've been looking for. And John knows what this gospel proclaims, that Jesus will change your life. Just quickly turn to the prologue. This is John chapter 1. I want to read a couple of verses because John, the more and more I'm studying this book and I get to look back at this prologue, I realize this is the perfect way to start this book. John just encapsulated who Jesus was beautifully in these first 18 verses of John. I'm not going to read them all, but I do want to highlight verses 14 through 17. It says this, and the word became flesh. The, the word, the word of God that, that spoke creation into existence in Genesis 1. The word of God that we, we see speak um, miracles into existence all over the Old Testament. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. Jesus, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he whom I said, he comes after me, ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. And hear this, because this is going to set up the uh, discussion early on in the sermon. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The The very beginning of this book, we see this comparison. We see this comparison between the law and Jesus, between the law and grace. The law is good. 
The law of God is good. The law of God is perfect. The law of God is beautiful. The, the law of God is, is a sure thing. It is a good thing. We should run after that. But the law of God is the standard that God cannot get around because it's his standard. He has to do that. But the law of God, when you hand it to a sinner, is bondage. Like if I told you that in order to, uh, live, to, to, to win your life, in order to go to heaven, that you had to com- complete a 5,000 meter run. I know there's some runners in here. And the only way that you could get to heaven is if you completed this 5,000 meter run, you would say, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll go to attempt that. Except you don't have any legs. Actually, better than that, you're dead on the starting line. And I can yell, I can stand over you and yell at you and say, but you have to complete the 5,000 meter race to get to heaven. Get up, get moving, get crawling. And while the race is a good thing and while the accomplishment is reasonable, 5,000 meters, a dead person can't run. You see, the law of God, when you hand it to somebody who is dead and you tell them to get up, pick up your legs, move faster, obey better, or do more, is bondage. That's not what Jesus came to do. Jesus didn't come to stand over us and judge us and say, get moving faster. He came to offer us something different, grace and truth. But I bring up this comparison because one of the things that we've seen throughout this entire book is the comparison between Jesus and the Pharisees, Right? These jokers just keep coming up. These Pharisees guy, sorry, the, it's the spring, so there's drainage going on. Hang on. It's Pharisees. The Pharisees' message sounds very much like law. The Pharisees' message says, do better. Work harder. Shape up or else. Get going down that path towards the finish line or else. And they have created this system. They've created these traditions. They've created these ideas from the Old Testament and from the law, which is a good thing. I'm not saying the law is a bad thing, but created these ideals from the law. And they have laid them upon people to say, this is how you have to live in order to be good. And Jesus has come in and consistently from the very beginning has offered something very different. Because they took the law of God and created a system around it. They had their human traditions and, and that, that they trusted in as the right way in order to get down to the finish line. But Jesus, our Savior, blows all of that out of the water. That's what the Gospel of John has been doing. It has literally been taking that comparison between the human traditions, doing it yourself, the religious leaders of shape up or ship out, and Jesus comes in and says, I'll do it. Trust me. You see, if you go against human tradition, and if you try to create a new way, people are going to push back. And they're going to ask appropriate questions like, why should we trust you? See, these human traditions have been so firmly entrenched in the Jewish religious order that the Jews and even us needed undeniable proof that Jesus is better than the system that the Pharisees were offering. And we have been able to see a book that has been demonstrating to us over and over and over again that Jesus is better 
There's, we can point to seven signs in the gospel of John, seven times that we see Jesus do these signs. And the reason that he does these signs is literally to prove I am more powerful than this system over here. I am more powerful than the thing that you are trusting in. I am more powerful than anything that you've ever seen. And because I am more powerful, you should trust me. And we've seen this in the seven signs. The first sign, the first sign that we saw was all the way back in John 2, changing water into wine. The second sign was the healing of the royal official son in John 4. The third was the paralytic by the pool in John 5. The, the I'm going to count this, fourth was the feeding of the 5,000 with the fish and loaves. The fifth was the walking on water. The sixth was the healing of the blind man. And the seventh, where we left off, was the raising of Lazarus. All these miracles are here to show us one simple truth. Jesus is Lord. But why did Jesus need to explain that? Why did he need to make sure that, that he showed us that he was Lord? Because he was operating in a manner that the religious leaders, and let's just say us, did not expect him to operate. We were built for law. We were built for law. At the very beginning, and it's not a problem. We were built for law. Adam was built for law. We were built to obey the law. If I tell you, you can be good, and the only thing that you have to be good is to do these 10 things, there's something inside of our soul that finds comfort in the fact of, good, I can check those boxes, and that makes me good. We're built for law. But Jesus comes in and doesn't sound like law. And so this created another issue because Jesus stepped outside of the normal religious traditions and structures. Instead of offering the law of Moses and duty and work and box checking, like the Pharisees so loved, he offered grace and truth in a new and a better way. He cleansed the temple in John 2 because the religious leaders were blocking those unworthy Gentiles from coming to Christ. He met with Nicodemus in John 3 and talked not about the duty and good work that we have to accomplish in order to be saved, but talked about the free gift of God to being miraculously born again. John 4, the Samaritan woman. Jesus went to a person that the religious leaders would never touch, talk to, go in. They went around them. No, Jesus goes right through Samaria because he's willing to offer hope to the shameful. The healing of the royal son, a Gentile son. Why in the world would you save a Gentile? Why would you help them? No, he offered his power to everyone, not just the Jews. This is what grace and truth being put on full display looks like. And guess what? The Pharisees hated it. They hated it because it was a radical and scandalous grace. Because it wasn't this dogmatic, fist-pounding, checkboxing truth. They couldn't take it. Which gets us to our passage today. Because we're coming off the heels of the seventh sign. The raising of Lazarus. We left it in an odd spot. It wasn't necessarily in the middle of the story because we saw that Lazarus was raised from the grave. But there is one more section before we start the last section of the book of John. His last week being alive. And we're, we're picking back up on the response to Lazarus being raised from the grave. I just want to read again the first couple of verses and we're going to work through it. It says this, Now many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary... 
had seen what he did, believed in him. Now, think back. They're in Bethany. Bethany is two miles from Jerusalem. Lazarus, Mary, Martha was a, was a well-known family. So undoubtedly, there would be people who journeyed from Jerusalem to Bethany to participate in the, uh, the, the morning ceremonies of Lazarus. I mean, think about when Jesus comes in and there is this commotion going on because all of these mourners and wailers are there to, to mourn uh, Lazarus's death. And Jesus pulls Mary and Martha aside and takes him to the tomb. And even at the sight of his all this death, we get the shortest book of the Bible. Jesus wept. And there Jesus is overcome with emotion. And what does he say? Roll away the, t- the stone. And what does Mary and Martha say? Jesus, it's not a good idea to see him right now. He's decomposed. He stinks. I, I wouldn't go in there. And what's Jesus do? Hello. The very thing that I said from the very beginning, Jesus died so that the glory of God might, might be displayed. Roll the stone away. So he rolls it away and, G- and Lazarus comes walking out. That doesn't happen. You see, in each one of these miracles and signs, it's not, it's not to say that one miracle is more miraculous than another because that doesn't make sense. I don't know how you judge miracles. I mean, water doesn't turn into wine. That's him changing the substance of this earth. Uh, uh, You know, sick people don't just miraculously be healed on their own. It's a miracle when that happens. But we all know for sure that truly dead people in graves for four days that no one questioned their deadness rise from the dead. So if there's one miracle of all the miracles that there was this huge crowd that could say, I was there, I saw him, I put him in the tomb, he started to smell, I, 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 I rolled the stone there, I know that he was dead, like dead, dead, dead from the neck up and dead from the neck down. Then he became back to life. What do you do with that? And what was the response from these people? Some, they went, wow. You know, the Pharisees can't do that. I've never seen them raise anyone from the grave. You know, my human traditions aren't that good. They're good, but they're not that good. Maybe I should trust Jesus. Because if he can do that, what more can he do? If Lazarus can trust him with his life and his soul, maybe I can trust him with my life and my soul. And so some heard and saw this sign and believed in him. But you see, we have two competing responses. And it's the negative response that carries us through this passage. Some were afraid of just what went down. And as it says, and some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. The Pharisees had everyone wrapped around their little finger. What I mean by by that is the Pharisees have this system that if you're not in good standing with them, if you're not in good standing with the synagogue, if you're not in good standing with their laws and traditions, then you're hopeless. You're cast off. You're shunned. And the Pharisees held everyone under this weight, this fear. Some saw the miracles of Jesus and thought, you know what? I'll, 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 I'll risk it with this guy. Others, they were afraid. And they ran back to the Pharisees and went, guys, He's doing some crazy stuff. You should, you should have a response to this. And they did. They called the council. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered, this is verse 47, gathered the council and asked and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. 
I'm sure they had their own list. They had things that aren't even included in the Gospel of John because think about it, this isn't all that Jesus did. This is just what John told us that Jesus did to fulfill the reason for his writing. They had lists and lists and lists of things. He did this and that and the other thing. He went here and there. Look at all of the miracles that he's done that we don't have an answer for. And they knew the time was up. Their fear was so great, their concern in their minds was so valid that they had to do something. They had to silence Jesus. But what's interesting about silencing Jesus, that's what they've been trying to do all along. Think back to the Feast of Booths. We had all these interactions with the Pharisees and Jesus. You know, chapters 5 through 10. All these interactions. Chapter 7 and 8 is like this constant debate that the Pharisees are just trying to stump Jesus. They're they're first, you know, and and, and the first thing, they want this public debate during the Feast of Booths so that uh, they can demonstrate, hey, you're not as smart as we are. Next, they sent officers to arrest him in John 7. They sent their officers, go get this guy. What did the officers do? The officers saw Jesus, heard Jesus, and they went back to the Pharisees and were like, I'm not so sure that's a lawful arrest. He's, he's not saying anything wrong. He's speaking truth. Then we saw that they tried to trap him with this Roman law with the woman caught in adultery of, okay, uh, are you going to stone this person like you should? And if, you, if it's a wrongful death, then, then they can get Rome to kill him. But they couldn't overcome Jesus. It was of no avail. Jesus' ministry, as much as they tried to silence him, as much as they tried to uh, minimize him, just kept growing. And you know what they look like? fools. This is what's going on in their soul at this moment. And I think this is what's behind this desire when it gets to verse 49 or 48. Because listen to their concern. I think finally, they finally get down to it. They're finally frustrated enough that they finally say, this is why we don't like him. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They're afraid of losing what they have. They're afraid because Jesus keeps poking holes in all the stuff they do. They're afraid because they they know they have a very privileged spot. The Romans have allowed them to have authority. The Romans have allowed them to have a voice. The Romans have allowed them to exist even as a nation. And they're afraid if this Jesus character keeps going, we are going to lose that. See how selfish this is? But also see just the fear behind this? Like they just are sitting here going, I don't want to lose the blessings that I have. And this guy is appropriately shining light on the fact that I'm wrong. You see, when they get down to it and they call this council together, what they realize is, is if we allow Jesus to keep going, we're going to lose all of our power. The other thing that I love about this scene is that there's men in rooms that don't normally participate in meetings together. This council 
was the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was a combination of the high priests and the Pharisees. Let's call them the Republicans. And then it was the Sadducees. Let's call them the Democrats. Now, I'm not saying that's like on the political side of like liberal, conservative, all that. I'm just saying, picture them like that. How often do the Republicans and Democrats actually agree on anything? I know I'm waiting in a really dangerous territory because I'm talking about politics, so just don't go there. How often? Not very often, right? Like two diametrically opposed ideas. We all want to make the nation a better place, but two diametrically opposed ways of doing that. That's this council. The fact that these guys are all in a room agreeing together is monumental on its own. When people saw that the whole entire council's like, yes, we'll listen to the high priest here, that, that really is their hatred for Jesus is greater than their hatred for each other. And they've gotten to this point where something has to happen because we are going to lose their power. And why are they going to lose their power? Because Jesus' message is very clear. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. You know who doesn't like that? The Roman emperor. Sitting on his throne thousands of miles away. Willing for Israel to remain its own nation if they follow Roman rule. Willing for the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the high priests to have authority if they do so playing under the guise of the Roman Empire. But Jesus doesn't care about that. Jesus is following a higher power. Not the Roman power, but God's power. You see, they understood that Rome allows them to have a voice. Rome allows them to have authority. Rome allows them to continue as a nation, and they're afraid that they're going to mess that up. And for them, the Pharisees, if people believe in Jesus, that compromises their status and standing before men. And that didn't fit into their traditions, and so he has to go. Here's has been interesting. I think this is always a struggle with religion. I think we can quickly overlook Jesus and run to our traditions. And then when Jesus starts messing with that, we get mad at Jesus. I think it's so easy for us to set up these camps, these traditions, these laws, these boxes that we play in. And we say, this is what safety looks like. This is what we can and cannot do. This is what we must say and must not say. And the moment that something comes into that box, into that camp, into that uh, tradition and messes it up, we get afraid, do we not? Jesus th just did that on the whole with the religious leaders. These are good guys. Like, can we just stop and think that the religious leaders were the most moral individuals walking around Israel? These aren't the terrible dudes. These are the really good dudes. But what did the really good dudes want to do? The really good dudes wanted to use the law against us. The really good dudes were saying, the only way that God can love you is if you get up off that starting line and make it to the end. Jesus didn't say that. Jesus said, uh, I know that you can't get up. Jesus said, I know that you need grace. Jesus said, I know that there is no hope outside of me. 
it's so easy for our traditions to actually lure us away from Christ. I mean, this is Galatians 3. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Galatians, the Galatians, were running after good things. They were running after lawful things. They were running after perfect things that were described in the Bible. But they were running after them thinking, oh, in order for God to be happy with me, in order for me to be a good Christian, in order for me to be safe in this life, I have to have Jesus plus something. But this scared the council because Jesus comes in and says, no, it's not Jesus plus something, it's me. So, they finally decide, had enough. We've tried all of the debating tactics. We've tried all of the arresting tactics. We've tried all of our, uh, you know, canceling tactics. We've got one more thing to do. Verse 49, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. I just have to say this. Uh, Jesus is about to die in uh, roughly seven days' time from this point. So he was the high priest this year and was his last year because our high priest now is sitting on throne in heaven, and it is Christ. Just, and said to them, you know nothing at all. Uh, the way that you should translate that is, you fools, you idiots, you dummies. We've been running around trying to fix this thing one way. You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for one man to die. It's better for, that, for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now, if there's not a greater verse with greater irony in it right then and there, I don't know what is. I mean, just listen to this again because I botched it in, in reading the first time. You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now, what Caiaphas is thinking is we're in danger of losing our status before Rome. We're in danger of losing the power that we have with Rome. We're in danger of this tradition and system falling down around it. It's better that one dude dies that's getting in the way of things than it is for the entire nation to perish here. Let's think about it. We have people that we have to protect and positions that we have to protect. So let's just kill this dude and get it over with. Now John writes this and he can't stop. But just talk about the irony because verse 51, he did not say this on his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Because in a remarkable moment, the Jerusalem high priest declares in the voice of a prophet against his own knowledge of intention that Jesus would redeem and die for the nation of Israel. For him, it just made sense that one man should die because it was worth saving their religious standing and traditions with Rome. But what he didn't know was that Jesus' death was the only way for him to save us and us all. The idea of perishing has been with us from the beginning. And the... And the Pharisees were afraid of perishing, but their system being afraid of perishing. Think, though, about the most popular verse in the Bible, John 
I had to quote it because I tried to quote it earlier this week and I botched it. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it. It's the most popular verse in the Bible and the pastor can't do it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not, what's the next word? Perish. But have eternal life. These Pharisees were worried about the whole nation should perish. God's worried about that too. God's worried about us perishing. That's why he sent his son. And oh yeah, it's better for one person to die than for the entire nation to perish. That's why Jesus had to die. Because the options are either each and every one of us perish for our own sins. Because that's what we are are guilty of and that is what God requires. Or one man dies for them all. The perfect man. The man who should not die. But the man who came to die so that none of us should perish. Protecting the whole nation, the world from perishing has always been the aim of Jesus' ministry. You see, the high priest is saying he should die to stop this madness. But God is declaring Jesus' death is the only way to stop this madness. The high priest is thinking at this moment, okay, let's kill him and be done with it. And next week, sorry, Brian, I'm going to steal some of your thunder. Next week, they're also going to say, we should also kill Lazarus too because he's creating this madness. But notice the beauty of this idea. Verse 52. I'm sorry, 51 and 52. He did not say this on his own accord. Being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And he stops, he goes, but not for the nation only. Because when they say, when they hear nation, they're thinking Israel. They're thinking Jews. They're thinking Jerusalem. And that's what the high priests are thinking. We have to make sure that our sect, our bubble, our box, our tradition is held intact. John's like, he didn't come to die just for you. No, what? He did not, but not only for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Because he came so that the entire world would not perish. These religious leaders are concerned with keeping Israel intact. Jesus is concerned with reconciling all men to himself. You see, they've consistently demonstrated that their message of hope the law of Moses, what to do and what not to do was only for Israel. Again, think about the cleansing of the temple. Why was Jesus so angry at the cleansing of the temple? Because the Jews took the court of the Gentiles and turned it into a marketplace. The Jews literally gave a giant, I'll just say it, middle finger to the Gentiles saying, we don't want you here. And we're going to demonstrate that we don't want you here by kicking you out of the temple. That's, these Jews were just concerned with what's going to be good for Israel. But Jesus has consistently demonstrated this message of hope, this grace and truth that we got to see at the very beginning of this. This grace and truth was for the entire world, for Jews and for Samaritans and for Gentiles. And by God's grace for us. So what has to happen? Well, 
So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Because the high priest said, this is the only way out. He's got to die. I just want to acknowledge what we just looked at and went through. That was Jesus' trial. What happens hours before his crucifixion isn't the trial. Everything that we're about to see, this, this next section that we're starting is, a, is one week period of time. Starts with the triumphal entry and it leads up to his crucifixion. But this is the moment when the council, when the high priest, when the Sanhedrin, when the Pharisees decided Jesus has to die. The only way that this is going to end if that guy is silenced. And everything else has literally just been setting them up for him to die. I'm going to finish out our passage this morning by reading the, the rest of 11 because it just, it ties us into, gets us, it gets us to this, uh, the, the week of the Passover that we'll look at next, starting next week. But it says this, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. This is about 12 miles uh, northeast of Jerusalem and it's on the edge of the wilderness. So it's close enough that he's going to come back into Jerusalem, but far enough away that uh, the, this council couldn't just send officers to Jesus and saying, well, he has a death wish now the moment that anyone arrests him, he's going to die. And now the Passover of the Jews, verse 55, was at hand and many went up from the went up from the country of Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will come, that he will not come to the feast at all? Because they knew. They knew what that council decided. That wasn't a secret. For now the chief priest and the Pharisees has given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let him know that they might arrest him so that he can die. I've just been struck with the difference between Jesus and the Pharisees, with Jesus and, religion, and religious traditions. Jesus is concerned with one thing and one thing only. That's glorifying God through grace and truth. And that can be such a scary thing for us all. Because we can have these finely entrenched um, systems and cycles and pathways in life that make us feel safe. But do you know what's happened in my life? I've studied Jesus and realized while the path is okay, maybe it's not Jesus. And so I just, I would leave you this morning as we're looking through John, consider. Are you following a tradition that holds Jesus at the center and that uses his name, but you're actually following that tradition? Or are you following Jesus? And sometimes what might be hard to, to recognize is those two things might not be the same thing. As we turn our attention towards communion this morning, as we do every week here, we get to see this grace and truth on display. Because this table does not pull any punches about who we are. This table declares through the bread that you are a sinner and that I am a sinner.
and that our life, our work, our duty, our discipline is worthless because it's not enough. Because we can't fulfill the law perfectly. This blood, though, that's represented by this cup is here to proclaim to us that the sacrifice that was required has been had in Christ. And so I can stand here, here today as a, as a minister of the gospel and proclaim to you that the reason that God is good with you is not because of what you've done, but because of the faith that you have placed in Christ. And so if you are here today and you are a believer, we would uh, welcome you to take this table with us as we remember what Christ has done for us and be filled up in that. But if you're here today and you're not a believer, you haven't placed your faith in Christ, maybe somebody brought you to church and, 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 and you're still questioning these things, wondering who is this Jesus? I would ask that you let this table pass you by. Ultimately, because we don't want it to confuse you. We don't take it to... to level up our spirituality, we take it to celebrate. But afterwards, I would love if you'd come find me and ask me how you can meet Jesus, how you can place your faith in him, how you can be saved, how you can stop running and trying to make it to the end of that 5,000 meter race that you're dead at the start line and how you can turn to him and he will transport you there by his life and his death and his burial and his resurrection. Let's pray and we can take this together. Lord, thank you for this hope that we have, for this new life that you have given us. Thank you that we can recognize that we, are, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were dead at that start line. We couldn't make it to the end of the race, but you did. And you transported us there. You imputed your righteousness to us. Thank you that I can stand here today as a minister of the gospel and proclaim that we can be good with you not through duty, through traditions, through actions, through work, but by simply placing our faith in you. Lord, help that to compel us to live holy lives. Compel us to live lives that is, is proclaiming that grace to others. Live lives that look and act like salt and light to the world around us. In your son's name, amen. In a few more chapters in the Gospel of John, we're going to get to see Jesus in the upper room. Look at his disciples that have grown up in a system that has pressed, tried to press them into doing more and being better.
and look at them and say, I've got this. And today as we take this bread, it's still true. Christ's life and death and burial and resurrection are still sufficient for you. So take this and eat this and celebrate that. I have a lot of compassion for the Galatians because it's a really scary thing to walk away from your long-held traditions and those things that you trust in. It is. It's really scary for the Pharisees. Like, I, I know I'm, I'm dogging on them, but I get it. Like, they had everything lined up perfectly. And it's really scary to say, I gotta forsake all of that and come to Christ. And so maybe you're there. Maybe you're in that battle because that is the battle of the Christian life. Am I, I going to trust in my own hands or am I going to trust in Christ's life? And yet this blood I can say today and next week and the next week and 100 years ago and 100 years to come if Christ hasn't returned yet. His life was sufficient. You can rest. In him, you have been declared righteous. 100%. You're not adding to that. And in him, you're not going to take away from that. And so we can take this today celebrating that truth. Let's take this. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.